On today's podcast, Dr. Joe and Amy Alton, also known as Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, join me to talk about pregnancy and delivery in an SHTF situation. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is usually an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website. But from time to time, I interview members of the preparedness community who can bring a ton of value and information to your preparedness. Links for this podcast can be found in the show notes or on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey everyone, do I have an episode for you? You know, one of the things that I think about, and my mind just kind of travels there sometimes, is if we were in an SHTF situation, how would we go about delivering babies? Now, you see things online, you watch movies, and it, you know they make it seem really easy, but you know that there's more to it than that. And so if you have not been heavily involved in that, in something like that, you really don't know what to expect. You're really not prepared for it. And so I wanted to talk to someone. Actually, I wanted to talk to two people that I respect very highly uh, in the preparedness community. You have heard from them before on the podcast, uh, actually a couple of times. I think Dr. Bones has been on here more than anybody else. We, we talk a little bit about this. Actually, we, it's not just a little bit. We talk a lot about this. And so this is going to be one of those episodes that you're probably going to want to download. You, you want to listen to a little bit. And it might even freak you out a little bit if you're thinking, if you really truly think about all of, all of that goes into it, right? So anyway, um, I'm so glad that they were able to come on the podcast and talk a little bit. I, we could have talked for hours. They're some of the greatest people that I know in the preparedness community. And so I'm really happy to have them here and talk about this important topic. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this episode with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Dr. Joe and Amy Alton of doomandbloom.net. Joe and Amy Alton, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. Well, we're very glad to be here. Happy to be here. It's great. Glad to see you're healthy and safe. <laughs> so good to see you, Todd. It's good to be healthy and safe. Yeah. Um, so I've been wanting to talk to you guys about this. And, you know, it's kind of funny because when I think about you guys, I think about survival, I think about, you know, SHTF, I don't always think about, you know, labor and delivery and pregnancy and stuff like that. But the thing is, is that this was your specialty. Um, when when you were practicing, officially practicing out there, right? So, um, tell us a little bit about why you choose why you why you chose this practice, you know, labor and delivery and, and dealing with pregnancy. Okay, I'll start. Well, you know, I wanted to be a physician, but I wanted to be part of happy events also. So it's very difficult, a lot of fields uh, in medicine, to be involved in any happy events whatsoever. I mean, you're either dealing with somebody who's very sick or it could be dealing with someone with cancer, things like that. I wanted to be part of happy events, and the only happy event that just seemed to be almost certainly happy, and we had a good chance of good outcomes, was in maternity. Also, I wanted to learn to perform surgery. And indeed, in the OBGYN field, there's a lot of pelvic surgery that you do, I wanted to deal with that. I wanted to learn how to do that. And I also wanted to have the ability to deal with some medical problems too. And I was the main person taking care of, uh, let's say, a a diabetic woman who was pregnant or a person who had low thyroid who was pregnant. And so it really was the whole package for me. And the downside was, of course, I spent a a lot of nights 
up at three o'clock in the morning sitting with my pregnant ladies in labor. But the kind of relationship that you were able to get from being with someone for you know months and months and and getting to know them, they get them getting to know you. I've got a suitcase full of photos of me and babies that hundreds. were given to me by hundreds. by mom. So I mean, I, I could actually cram that. They crammed them into a suitcase. <laughs> I had so many hundreds of photos of babies and and mama. Well, not not only did he have the relationship with uh, the folks that were pregnant, but you also then followed them because you were a doctor for so long. Yes. To them growing up, believe it or not, babies he delivered grew up now and I then delivered he their delivered babies. their babies. I delivered their babies. So, yeah. and moms would bring in their sisters and they would bring in their, their mothers. And, you know, we had a lot of extended family members that would come to the practice. And it was nice. It was always right. like seeing family members. And then, of course, you get to see the babies grow up. Which right. is so cute. <laughs> if you're a good obstetrician, your patients grow old with you. Yeah. You know, and they you start doing mostly gynecology. And by the end of my practice, I was just mostly just doing pelvic, a lot of pelvic surgery. <clears throat> of course, some of those situations aren't happy situations. You know, there people develop tumors and things like that. But I still felt I was able to do, you know, a lot of good for people. And You did. Thank you. you absolutely well, did. thank you very much. And you. And we would meet people in the mall or in the grocery stores and, oh, hey, how are you? Do you remember me? And he is really good about names. I was better about faces. So I would recognize them and he would just remember their name. I'm like, how in the world did you do that? And some of them are preppers actually today and actually follow oh, yeah, our website. Oh, yeah, that funny? And it's funny. That is funny. But why did I become a nurse midwife? I don't know. I just always loved babies and children. Um, I knew when I started nursing school, I went to the, the best one I could find that I could drive to, which was Barry University in Miami Springs, Florida. Private Catholic all-women college and, or university until the day I started. That was the day they said we're co-ed. So there were probably five boys on the campus, <laughs> but all my teachers were nuns. I mean, I had a strict nursing education, but I knew from the beginning I wanted to be a, a nurse midwife, and I had already looked into University of Miami having a program, which sadly they don't have anymore. I just was always interested. And when I went through my OB, we actually had a doctor come in and talk to us. And to this day, I believe that it was him because he yep, was, was an adjunct professor the professor at Barry Nursing School. <laughs> during the time that I was going to school that would come to my school and talk about delivering babies. And so I believe that I met him in 1986. It would have been my junior year when I went through OB. Um, but I didn't graduate or start working for him or, or even meet him until 94. Decade Three, later. 93, actually, I interviewed oh, yeah. when I was still in school, and my um, youngest was eight months old. And now she's 20, I don't know, six, <laughs> something yeah. like that, 27. <laughs> but anyway, um, I always knew I wanted to be a nurse midwife. Just love babies, love the whole idea of it, wanted to be as independent as possible. I was a labor and delivery nurse after I finished the grad, the bachelor's, but hate not doing it now are we all in the delivery room together sometimes there were times yes yeah, yeah. sometimes you... i'd call him in i didn't have to as a nurse midwife with hospital privileges 
Um, I basically did everything he did if he was delivering a baby. Um, my patients could have epidurals if they wanted. You know, I could sew up the episiotomies if that's what they needed or if they had any lacerations. Right, so she could do that, that kind um, of so procedure. So sometimes he would come in just, you know, just, hey, because he knew the patients. We all shared our patients. We made sure they got to know everybody. So whoever was there that they knew and they felt comfortable with. Um, but occasionally we'd have some complications maybe starting. So I would call him or whoever the OB was on. He owned the practice. Um, so he probably worked more than everyone else. But I'd call him and just kind of a standby, like just be here in case something happens. Or, of course, if somebody needed a C-section, we determined it was just this is not going to happen. Um, I would turn it over to the physician. Wow. Good, great story. And, and I didn't know that about you all, right? I mean, I knew, I knew a little bit of the history in that you specialized in that. But one thing you might not know is that we were – one of the first practices in Florida, actually, to integrate midwives, Nurse, midwives and conventional doctors in private practice. practice. Yeah. We, he had a private practice that he owned. At one point, he had Big five or six doctors. We had three nurse midwives, and we also had a physician's assistant. Yes, that's right. Y'all are the perfect couple to be talking about this here because <laughs> going, you know, talking about this. Uh, of course, this is a preparedness podcast. We're talking about, you know, what we would have to do in a survival situation, an SHTF situation, and things like that. I mean, we're so used to going to the doctor or even midwives. I know midwives are real popular right now and all those different kinds of things. But my focus here right now is going to be on an SHTF situation and what to expect and what we can think about and what, or what we need to think about, how we need to proceed, how we need to prepare um, and so that's, that's really something that's been on my mind and, uh, kind of like what we were talking about a little bit before the interview started. I mean, I've got boys that are, you know, if there was a SHTF situation and they had wives and they got pregnant and, you know, what would happen in, in that situation? And you would want to know, you would have, want to have this information. And I, it's something that I don't think we always talk about in the preparedness community. I mean, of course, there's articles, your books are out there that are so helpful, but we can think about all the things that would happen. Having babies is going to continue to happen as long as there's a human oh, yeah. race here, right? That's right. So, well, let's go ahead and start off. And I just tried to if, uh, imagine this just from my experience of being a father and walking with my wife through, through pregnancies with our boys. Um, just trying to think of, you know, what, how things proceeded. So uh, I just want to start off, I guess, here. So in an SHTF situation, without drugstore pregnancy tests and, and all of the kind of stuff that, that we're so used to now, how can someone know for sure or how can a woman know for sure that she's pregnant? Well, you know, we're very fortunate to have these simple tests that you can buy at the pharmacy. And it's not a bad idea for the family medic for in a S. HTF situation to have some of these in their medical stores. They're going to run out eventually. The good news is that there are a lot of initial signs and symptoms that will give you an idea that somebody is pregnant. And, of course, the first one is that they miss a period. If they, ha if they are missing their menstruation you, and, and they're in, of childbearing age, then that's the most likely reason that that's going to happen. And also, um, on that vein, if you have periods that are very regular, Right. And women will know that. Um, I had never been somebody who was very regular, so um, it probably took me a little while to realize I was pregnant. 
the first time. But for women who are pretty much like clockwork and they start their period and then 28 days later, they start their next period and 28 days later, they start their third period. That's somebody who is going to be able to more reliably put some weight into, well, I'm a few days late. Uh, maybe I'm pregnant versus the irregular cycles like myself who might have gone six or seven weeks or even eight weeks who might not be so sure. So it's going to also depend on the history that you take from the patient as to how regular she was. And everyone should be keeping an eye on that. I think most women do keep an eye on it. So you should be able to elicit as the medic and the midwife or the doctor who's taking care of someone in this situation. Uh, that's one of the history things that you're going to ask. Well, of course, there are a lot of other physical signs. Your breasts begin to get tender. Uh, you may feel nauseous and start getting more, what they call morning sickness, although you can get it anytime. Um, Smells are very strong. Right, yeah. You start getting sensitive. Somebody's cooking garlic uh, five miles away, and you're like, I smell garlic, and it's going to make me sick. <laughs> oh, uh, the areola of the nipple starts turning from a pink to more brownish. As time goes on, of course, the weight of a of uterus starts pressing on the bladder, so they urinate more frequently. Also, presses on the sacroiliac. They might right. have some backache, and and <clears throat> they feel, of course, uh, some fatigue, especially as they get further along. The breast grow. The breast tissue right. starts to right and get a little fuller. Exactly. Now, all of these symptoms in combination are are really indicative of pregnancy, and the timing of each one of them may be variable, and the severity of the symptom or the breast may be more tender in some people than others. You know, some people get morning sickness to the point that they need IV hydration. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's called a hyperemesis gravidarum. And it, in the old days, people actually could die of dehydration as a result of not being able to get those fluids in intravenously. Of course, I wouldn't call it morning sickness. Everyone says, oh, it's morning sickness. I just call it sickness because it can happen any time of the day. You just suddenly become terribly nauseous. I think the whole morning sickness for me, personally feeling it, was an increase in acidity. I felt like, you know, that morning growling that you get because you're kind of hungry? That's exaggerated because I think you start putting out a little more stomach acid. Your stomach's growling and and it's sort of aching and hurting. And that's because you haven't eaten since dinner many, many hours. So I think that's where the morning sickness kind of shows up more, but it's it could be any time of the day that, that you just don't feel right. And I think doing some snacks in between the meals, not terribly fatty snacks, but some, some light snacks um, will help decrease that acidity and also help with some heartburn if you get that later on. If the medic has to investigate and ask all these questions, usually it's of somebody who's going into their first pregnancy. I mean, once you've been pregnant, a few times, you pretty much know you're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, come I have you. some news. <laughs> go to the medic and they'll say, hi, I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Just wanted to let you know. <laughs> good, good, uh, good advice there. All right, so let's say it's been established that someone is pregnant, a woman is pregnant. After that, what needs to happen? Because I, I remember, you know, from my, I guess, our own experience, um, the physical activity, the eating, the vitamins, you know, sure. all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, what needs to happen then to have a healthy pregnancy? Your body actually starts producing more blood volume, which makes sense because you've now got to feed a placenta and there's a filter there. You're not pushing blood into the baby, but you need more blood in your body as a pregnant lady 
to be able to feed that placenta and to be able to provide that extra oxygen that does get transferred to the baby. So what helps you make more red blood cells is iron. So as soon as you suspect, or even before you even try to get pregnant, it's not a bad idea to start eating iron-rich foods. Take a vitamin. Every pregnancy vitamin that has the word pregnancy will have enough iron. They have to have enough iron to be able to be called pregnancy vitamin. Now that amount of iron is about 27 to 30 milligrams. 30 is an easy number to remember. So you should start that before you try and while you're pregnant. Because again, we're trying to keep up the red blood cells. It's important to know it takes about four weeks to build red blood cells. Baby red blood cells don't carry oxygen for four weeks. So even starting the iron before just helps you be healthier when you get pregnant. So 30 milligrams every day. Unfortunately, that level of iron in some women, I'm going to raise my hand, uh, causes constipation. (laughs) So you got to make sure that you're eating your salads and your fruits and your vegetables, which are really good for the baby anyway. You want to keep up that fiber so that you keep things moving through your body. You want to have a lot of hydration. Again, you think of extra blood volume. What is most of the blood? It's it's water. So you need to have a good hydration. You don't want to be one of these people that feels dry and, and is dehydrated all the time. As somebody who's a loved one of the pregnant lady, hand her a glass of water often. <laughs> she might not be thinking about it. So extra water. When you get to breastfeeding, 9 milligrams of the iron is enough. So you can go from 30 down to 9, but you still need to maintain it during breastfeeding. Eating more protein will help you get the extra iron if you cannot get a vitamin. Let's say it's been so many years, we don't have vitamins left. Um, If you can get protein, especially chicken liver is super high in iron. And funny thing is canned oysters. (laughs) believe it or not, are really high. In fact, they have uh, 5.7 milligrams for um, canned oyster. Uh, One thing about the iron also and your pregnancy vitamin, don't take it with milk that decreases iron absorption and don't take it with caffeine. So you don't want to be drinking it with your coffee. Um, In fact, women shouldn't be drinking caffeine when they're pregnant if they can help it. So don't drink it with milk, but orange juice or apple juice are very helpful with iron absorption. Walking, we're going to talk about exercise for a second. Walking 15 to 20 minutes a day. You don't have to jog. You don't have to go to a gym and get on the treadmill and run like crazy. I mean, this is good information for everybody out there. Exercise doesn't mean you have to be killing yourself. It just means staying active. Just don't jump in bed and say, I'm going to sit in bed for the next nine months. Stay active. Now, what you don't want to do is be doing a lot of bending. So if you do a lot of cleaning of the toilets and cleaning of the bathtubs and bending over things, you're going to need to be careful about that because your joints loosen up. When you're pregnant, there's a hormone that comes into your body that loosens all your joints. That The purpose of that is to loosen up your hips so that when you pass a baby, if the baby's just a little too big, your body can adapt and get it out. So your joints are loosened. So you don't want to be picking up super heavy things. Be careful of your back. You can hurt yourself a lot easier. If you were lifting weights before, cut them down a little bit because you could hurt your shoulder or an elbow. Uh, read labels of any anything that you take medicine-wise. 
Is it safe for pregnancy? You want to start being very cognizant of medicines. And if you have any questions, you contact your doctor, right. your midwife, you're on or your medic. Can I take this? Can I take Sudafed? Can I take Tylenol? Can I, you know, you want to be careful about what you're putting into your body. Oh, and about exercise, one more thing. Uh, getting into water, swimming, a pool, very good on the joints. Uh, just pretend like you're an old person. How would they exercise? Yoga is wonderful for pregnancy. <laughs> Gentle stretching before you do anything and exercising in water. Good, good stuff. When you were talking about Sudafed, I was going back, you know, working in the education system. And when I was an assistant principal, we always had, you know, teachers were always pregnant. You know, sometimes I think there was one year we had like four at one time. And right. um, I, so, I felt so bad, you know, down here in Houston, the, the allergies are so bad. And I would feel so bad for them because they would go, you know, have allergies and, you know, their nose would be running and you could tell yes. they felt miserable, but they couldn't take anything for it. And so uh, I just, that's, that's kind of burned in my memory for, for everyone down here, I guess here in just everyone down in the South that has to deal with uh, allergies. Yeah. Saline nasal sprays are safe because yes. it's sterile salt water. You don't ever want to use tap water when you're putting anything into your nose. If you're using a neti pot, right. always sterile or boiled sterile. Uh, water or, or saline. Make sure it's sterile. But that's always good for pregnancy, those nasal sprays that are just saline. Good. All right. Good, good to know. All right. So one of the topics when we're talking about this that uh, unfortunately we have to talk about that is in an SHTF scenario, there will be probably more miscarriages than women experience today. I, at least I'm, I'm guessing. That's, that's just my thought here. What signs should the family medic be looking for? What, what's, you know, what, what can we expect there? You know, Todd, human beings aren't perfect. We don't always produce perfect pregnancies. As a matter of fact, 10% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage. So it, it's very, very common. It, but it doesn't have to mean that future pregnancies won't turn out just fine. You'd have to probably miscarry three times in a row to be considered a habitual miscarrier and have to really go through a full evaluation. What you would see in somebody who's miscarrying is usually some bleeding associated with cramps. Now, the bleeding doesn't have to be heavy, but it could be heavy in some situations. Of course, in normal times, the sonograms will tell you whether there's a beating heart or not in very early uh, these days in pregnancy. The amount of pregnancy hormone in your lab tests uh, will, is supposed to go up at a certain rate. If it stays the same or it goes down, obviously that's a sign of a pregnancy that's not viable. These are things, of course, you're not going to have in a, you know, what hits the fan situation, but these are things that we use right now. And bottom line is with these kind of patients, what you have to do is hopefully with just a little bed rest, she'll pass whatever tissue is, is not viable in its entirety. But uh, if she doesn't, sometimes we have to do a procedure in which you go in there with a curette, a type of scraper, and actually remove the material. And, but this is something that you wouldn't do unless there was a heavy bleeding or there was, let's say, a fever in a off-the-grid setting. Yeah, that, that's a very difficult situation. Yes, you have to have experience Off to do the that. grid, I mean... So you just have to hope that very things, dangerous. Will, things will expel on their own. Yeah. If not, though, I mean, they could indeed get infected if they stay there too long or, or may just continue to cause bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And sometimes you just have to intervene. And when that's the case, there's always the risk when you do a DNC that you might actually injure the walls of the uterus. Oh. And it is, uh, it's problematic. 
So yeah. let's hope that whatever miscarriages do occur will occur in such a fashion that all the tissue that they expels. just right comes out together. So if that was uh, the case, let's say someone did miscarry carry in an SHDS uh, situation, a woman miscarried. Is there anything after that, after that situation, um, that needs to be done as far as um, you know, do they need bed rest? Do they need a lot of water? Do they need? Are we talking about more vitamins? Are we, um, you know, what what would go on there? I, I know that it happens. You know, nowadays there's procedures. You go in, the doctor gives you a list of things to do, or maybe they give you some medicine or whatever. But in in a, a off grid grid down situation, what would be the next steps? Well, for the most part, just keeping that person from having to perform during work sessions and uh, preventing exertion, probably just about all that you're going to be able to do. They're going to need hydration. They're going to need uh, good nutrition to get them through this. This is probably about all you can do, I think, in this kind of circumstance. It's uh, something that most people, honestly, a lot of the miscarriages that occur just sort of come as late periods people don't even know they didn't even were really, know right didn't, didn't even, even know that they were pregnant right for the most part i think that things will not be complicated and in some circumstances you have to intervene but for the most part just bed rest and hydration and good nutrition i think will yeah. do wonders yep all right well let's let's move to something a little happier then okay, <laughs> okay good <laughs> right. let's, move to, let's move to delivery right so all how, right how someone know uh, it's time to deliver because I know that we had a lot of false, you know, of false calls and, and different things like that. Um, you know, t- tell us a little bit of what to expect there, especially for the person who's never experienced it before. Well, mothers go into labor usually about within two weeks, I'd say, of what we call the estimated date of confinement. And so we call it a due date now. The, nowadays, they used to call it estimated date of confinement or EDC, because they actually would confine a mother to her bed at the very last part of her pregnancy. To know when you're supposed to deliver, when the average pregnancy is about 40 weeks for humans, to get to that, you take the first day of the last period, this is in period people who have regular periods, and you subtract three months, and then you add seven days. That'll get you to 40 weeks. And so if, if November 1st is the first day of your last period, then 11 minus 3, 8, and 1 plus 7, 8. So August 8th is your actual due date. Now, of the next year. Not that, going back in time. We're not delivering back in it time. It rarely <laughs> happens on that day, but right. it will usually happen you know, most of the time within two weeks of that. So that's one thing that's important. But there are physical signs, too, that uh, occur. The cervix begins to change. If you did a gloved exam and put, put some lubricant in the glove and put two fingers in the vagina and felt for the cervix, which is in the back of the vagina, the cervix feels like your nose when it's not ripe. Right. And it feels like your lips when it's getting ready to begin the process. So that's that's one physical symptom that you'll see. You may also see an expelling of some mucus, maybe mixed with a little bit of blood. That's called mm-hmm. the bloody show. And that's a sign that the cervix has begun to slightly dilate in the very beginning. And that will come out. People will look at it and wonder what it means. Looks like snot. And what it is is an actual plug. Yeah, it's a mucus plug. That plugs up the inside of the cervix, which is how the sperm got in there. So now there's a plug there. (laughs) It's no no entry anymore. (laughs) But it's a protection for the baby. 
you know, so no bacteria or anything gets in there and messes up the baby. Um, but so as the cervix starts to come open a little bit towards the end, that plug might come out. Um, it does freak out some women and think that, you know, oh, I'm bleeding. But usually it's it's snotty and it's thick and it's uh, maybe a little bloody, pinkish with a little red, but it's not blood. I mean, we're not talking about a nosebleed here. That's that's the difference. If anyone's had a nosebleed, you know you get like clots and bright red and it won't look like that. Now, as time goes on, in, in late pregnancy, you're going to begin to start to notice contractions. And so there are going to be circumstances where you're going to wonder, is this the real thing or is this what they call false labor? And uh, they also call it Braxton Hicks contractions. And to determine, we would use, usually do is tell people, hydrate a lot, lay on your left side, and see what happens over the course of a couple of hours. In people who are in false labor, the contractions become less frequent and they indeed just go away right. over, over time. If it's real labor, those contractions usually go on pretty fast and furious by a couple of hours despite bed rest and hydration. So those are important ways to determine that it is time to get ready for the yeah. delivery. Now, one thing I want to mention about contractions is the way you time a contraction is when it starts, when she says, oh my gosh, it's starting, to the next one starts. That's your timing of contractions. It's not this one's over and then the next one starts. It's from the beginning of one contraction to the beginning of the next. next. Exactly like I said with the timing of your period. The first day of your period to the first day of the next period. It's not how many days were in between the bleeding. It's first day to first day, first start of contraction to first start of contraction. That's how timing goes. But yes, what'll happen is after they're hydrated and after they lay on their side, if they're starting to get closer and stronger, it's probably a sign you need to start gathering your stuff together. And everyone needs to come around and all know their duties and their jobs and because it might be a few hours, but you need to be there. All right. So is there is there a time frame when they're, like, you know for sure, like, when they're this close, the contractions are this close, you're, you're, you're fine. I know my wife always tells the, the for our second, second child, because the first one, we went, and it was like it took forever, right? Like, he just didn't want to come out. And so the second time around, I'm like, hey, look, I know that you're having contractions. We're going to get there. But I wound up drinking a cup of coffee. I'm like, look, we're going to be there. I'm going to be there all night long. <laughs> so, you know, she, she she always makes fun of me for that. But, you know, is there a time where it's like, hey, it, it's, you know, they're this close. And for sure, that's a that's a good representation that the baby's coming like really close. Is there anything there? Yeah. So first babies are way different because your body has never done this before. So it's going to take a lot of effort of that uterus to open up the cervix. It's going to take a lot of pressure. It's going to take a lot of contractions because they gotta, it's got to open up a cervix that's never been opened before. So, I mean, if you're talking about now, because if you're at home and you're doing this at home, you don't have to go anywhere. But I would say first, baby, if you can wait until they're three minutes apart, which most women can't because they're screaming at their husbands, where's my, my blank epidural? <laughs> <laughs> you need to take me to the hospital now 
If she gets like that, you need to take her to the hospital. Don't make her stay home. Even if they're four or five minutes apart, if she's her head's spinning around, it's time to go, okay? But, you know, if if they're not so bad and she's, I don't know, got a high tolerance or maybe she doesn't have as many uh, nerve endings, sensing what's going on with the uterus, women are different. Um, about three minutes apart is a great time if you're not too far away from the hospital. If you're an hour away, maybe four minutes um, but yeah, but if you're at home, it won't matter because you don't have to go anywhere. With second babies, however, that uterus is going to remember how to open up that cervix. And you can have women deliver from the first contraction to the baby's out in a very short period of time. Third babies could be faster, fourth babies. I mean, with each child, the uterus goes, oh, okay, we remember that. Beak. <laughs> and the man is driving to the hospital and the woman's like okay the head's coming yeah, out yeah. all right there we go all right all right honey let's bring the baby into the seen, emergency room seen a lot of that <laughs> <laughs> so with each baby you want to spread those contractions out a little bit further before you're going to the hospital mm-hmm. maybe even five minutes and she'll get to know this she'll feel her body uh, all, all ours took forever, you know. It was like they didn't want to come out. <laughs> no, it's an eye, it's were an they eye. were they good size? Um, the second one, no, he was a little premature, Aww. but he's still, you know, it's you know, it's just one of those things. Like you said, I think every everybody's a little different. You just yep. need to know. Um, That's right. You know, what to you know be be prepared and know know what to do the next step. Because I know even should go faster the second. You know, you just you never know. Generally speaking, I mean, I think I took my mom, you know, two days, and my brother came out as my dad hit the emergency room. They wheeled her up, and by the time he told them her name and ran up there, my brother was out already. (laughs) You just don't know. Better to be safe than sorry. Better to go and be sent home than to be home too long and say, "Oops, sorry." Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, so let's say uh, the woman's ready to deliver and, and everything's ready to go. Um, what needs to be prepared for the delivery? Combine what you should be doing at home with some equipment that I actually have. Um, but let's talk about, first of all, your location for the delivery. You're going to want a nice, comfortable location. It is for her comfort. If she likes a particular bedroom or or the living room or wherever it is, you need her to be comfortable. It's helpful to have a bathroom nearby so she doesn't have to walk too far to use the restroom. Uh, so that's one thing that I would mention to her, depending on where she wants to deliver. Have lots of pillows. You want to support her back. Um, a lot of women like to labor on all fours. Sitting with the belly hanging down, that's always a a good thing for the baby to be able to position itself. Instead of being up against the spine, it's better for the baby to rotate. Uh, Sometimes it makes labor faster, but the woman's going to need a lot of pillows, a lot of blankets, comforting music, depending on what she likes to listen. We want to distract her. If she wants to watch some movies, uh, pop some movies in to distract her for those 10 or 12 hours before she's getting to the point where it's... Time to go, go, go. You want to make sure that she feels comfortable with who's around her. Make sure she approves everyone. If she doesn't want somebody in the room, that person is not to be in the room no matter how much they want. She is in control of that because she needs to be zen. She needs to be in control. Women who feel like they've lost control in labor 
are not going to cooperate when it comes to pushing. They're going to feel out of control. You need to give her pretty much everything she wants. You need to make sure that you are giving her sips of water. I know when you go to the hospital, I'm not sure. It depends on each hospital. They did used to say nothing by mouth. I want you to hydrate your patient. Your Hydrate her. They're not going to have IV fluids going in. Most women who went to the hospital had IV fluids. That's not going to happen. You keep her hydrated. Okay, that's super important. Little snacks. If she wants peanut butter toast or peanut butter crackers or some soups. Now big thing is bone broth. Awesome. It's not going to sit in her stomach and come up later, but it's going to give her some protein, some nutrition, some energy to get through this because it's not easy to get through that many hours um, in pain. Equipment. Consider having some things for vital signs. These are things you should have already if you were monitoring this person during their pregnancy. You're going to want to have been taking her blood pressure. You're going to want to have been taking her temperature. Uh, nowadays, a lot of us have pulse oximeters because of COVID, that little thing clips on the finger. I think most households have it. Um, we didn't typically do that for patients, but I think it's a good uh, way to tell if the woman has a lot of oxygen in her body or if she's breathing too much or not breathing enough. So checking the pulse oximeter when you're checking her temperature and her blood pressure, not a bad idea. A stopwatch. We may not have our phones charged or even have too much electricity. So have something with a second hand or a stopwatch, something to time those contractions. Also monitor her respirations. You're going to be counting those. You're going to need to have a stopwatch or something for counting. You're going to need to know whether her bag of water broke. Some people think their water broke and it's sometimes just urine. If the water breaks, it's a, it's a good thing to know. Because the longer the water's broken before the baby comes out, the more chance of an infection. There's something called nitrazine paper. You have that in your kit. Yeah, it's a, it's a pH check, basically. It's just a little strip of paper, and it changes a certain color based on the pH. And it can tell you whether this was urine, which is generally a, a, a neutral, right. Acidic to neutral. Right. Um, versus the uh, bag of water. So nitrazine paper, and I do have that in my kit is important to have again we're talking about you know feeding and hydrating uh, they make really reasonably priced fetal dopplers and if you're someone like yourself a fetal doppler is this little machine it's about that big and it has this little wand with a flat part and it can listen for the baby's heartbeat they used to run gosh seven eight hundred dollars sometimes over a thousand I've seen them for just a couple hundred dollars. Now, I can't vouch for the quality of them, but I would think that over this period of time, they would figure out how to make simple electronics to measure a baby's heartbeat that don't cost $1,000. So you might consider having a fetal Doppler if you may have to deliver babies. It's good. Remember you were wondering how you would tell if there was a baby that had passed inside of a woman? If you knew where you were supposed to listen to the heartbeat, and you were looking and you don't hear it, you know, it kind of gives you an idea that maybe something could be happening. So fetal Doppler is a good thing. While someone's in labor, there are midwives that say when you're at home, listen once an hour. We used to listen at least every 15 minutes. So it just depends on how much you want to be monitoring that. Baby's heartbeats run between 120 and 160. Uh, the more the baby's active and moving, uh, the higher the heartbeat will be. It's like if you ran across the playground, 
the child's heartbeat would be higher than the child sleeping. And babies do sleep and babies do move. So somewhere between 120 and 160 is, would be a good monitor for it. You want to have gloves. When the woman's in labor, they don't have to be sterile. Um, you can use non-sterile but nitrile gloves because you don't want to introduce an allergy. Some women have problems with latex. Lots of lubricating jelly. Not Vaseline, that's sticky, but that lubricating jelly, they come in little packets. I do give, I think it's like 40 nitrile gloves. I, I use the extended length. You don't want to be introducing any bacteria into her. You want to make sure you wash your hands or, or wash and use hand sanitizer before you put the gloves on and after you take the gloves off. Very important. So I put lots of gloves and lots of lubricating jelly packets. There's something called chucks. Chucks, um, if you've had a puppy, they are also called puppy pads. They're exactly what we used in the hospital uh, for incontinent patients, for patients who had to do have procedures done. They're non-sterile. They have a blue back and a white front. And you put the white front underneath the woman's buttocks. If her water's broke, she's going to have a lot of leakage. And it's not comfortable to sit on wet pads. So I put 25 pads in there, in, in the kit. There's a big pile of them because I want you to keep her dry so she doesn't get a rash. So you need to change those frequently. So chucks, a waterproof pad for the bed or waterproof sheeting because you don't want to ruin a mattress, especially during a, a it's, it's hit the fan situation and you can't replace that mattress. So waterproof pads are really good. My kit does come with um, a 60 by 90 inch uh, waterproof pad. It also comes with a, a under the buttocks drape. So if she's on the edge of a bed, you can put the, the drape under there to protect everything. Um, you definitely want to have a bulb syringe. We're going to need to suck out the baby's nose and the mouth, hopefully before it breathes. So any of that mucus that is accumulated in there is out. So the baby breathes in. It doesn't get a lot of junk in the lungs. You can get a nice clean um, scream <laughs> or crying. Mm -hmm. Clean towels. Uh, are always good. We're going to need to support the perineum as the baby is born. Gauze is also good for doing that, for supporting it. You want the baby to deliver out slowly. I know you're going to discuss the actual delivery. Sure. These are just things you need. So towels, um, gauze, a bulb syringe, two forceps at least because we're going to need to clamp that cord. You're going to need some scissors to cut between. Um, I would like to have those sterilized. Pressure cooking, uh, I think it's 15 PSI for 15 to 20 minutes. Get those as sterile and clean as possible. You, again, you don't want to introduce any bacteria to the baby. Uh, again, the scissors will be sterilized. An umbilical cord is this little plastic clip. It's a clamp. It, it's, a, it's a little clamp, and it just clips on. It's got teeth, and that's what's going to go right next to the baby's belly button uh, after the baby's dried up. You might want to have some betadine prep solution to prep the perineum before delivery. Uh, for you delivering the baby, I'd like you to have a head cover. They have bouffant head covers. I have these in my kit. Um, a mask, goggles. If you have a face shield, you can replace the goggles with a face shield. Um, I do use the goggles and the mask in, in the kit. A gown, um, not only to protect you, but also remember you're going to be bringing the baby to you and you don't know how dirty you are, so you'd want a nice clean environment when you're bringing the baby to you as it's being delivered. I also include boot covers, which go up to the knees, and that's really just to protect 
you know, your shoes or in your pants or whatever you're wearing, um, the gowns don't go down past the feet. Um, those towels, I want them warm because after the baby's born, I want warm towels drying the baby, not cold towels. And if you can warm blankets to cover the baby and the mom together when they do their skin to skin, uh, that's also wonderful. Some ice packs, uh, made up ice packs or instant ice packs are going to be going on to the woman's perineum after delivery. Some nice thick ABD pads, even diapers, something to for the for the woman to wear afterwards because she's going to have a little discharge, um, and a basin for the placenta. And then I have a few extra you know little things that come in the kit that are helpful, but that's about it. And I think um, if you acquired all of that, that you'll feel really good that you can handle delivering a baby. Now I'll tell you that there's so much stuff in her kit that I've never seen any, any kid like it. She really was very ambitious with it. I also do offer sterile gloves for the actual delivery. I have sterile gloves too, but I also offer a suture kit. Now, of course, you'd have to be skilled, but sometimes women get some significant tears depending on the size of the baby's head, how fast it came out. Hopefully, you're controlling how she's pushing, so it's stretching very slowly so it doesn't get any tears but there's a suture kit that I include um, if you want to add it on with special suture material that will dissolve so you don't have to go back there and remove anything it'll stay as long as it needs to heal and then um, they dissolve or fall out well and and I'll say that I I know what you put into your kit so I know it's quality stuff it's not (laughs) it is actually the the sterile basin that I use add a bunch of other stuff also but the sterile basin that I use uh, with all the sterile stuff in it is the exact ones that we used to use when we delivered babies they have not changed it's the same baby blanket the same cap with the, the stripes on it it's it's exactly the same kit that we used to use right that's good all right yeah well, I definitely want to uh, to link to that kit and uh, I think that would be a, a great um, addition to your, your medical supplies uh, for anyone anyone to have. All right, so we have our supplies. We're, we're ready to go. All right, so Dr. Dr. Bones, Joe, tell us, tell us what to expect here during the delivery. <laughs> well, early on, you know, the labor goes relatively slowly as the cervix has to thin out and it has to begin to dilate. In other words, open up and it has to thin out and eventually becomes as thin as paper. Probably would take a while for several hours to get from zero to four centimeters for the average person. And three to four centimeters is about the width of two fingers. And so if you put your glove hand and some lubricant on, you examine the vagina, then what you'll see is that your two fingers will actually fit inside the cervical opening and so once that happens things start to go faster and once you hit four to five centimeters or so then the average labor will go at about a centimeter or so an hour until you hit 10 centimeters 10 centimeters is considered to be completely dilated and at that point you don't feel the cervix at all you just feel the baby now you may feel the bag of water if the bag of water hasn't broken and that's going to feel slick and, and soft. Like feel a water balloon. Like, like a water balloon. Like a water like balloon. You're, like you're, like feeling you're pushing a water into balloon. a water balloon, right. and then you feel the head. <laughs> if the bag of water has broken, it'll feel soft and grainy, So because you may be feeling some of the baby's hair. So these are things that you may just see. Now, you don't have to break the bag of water. The bag of water will break on its own as the baby descends. Now, your baby will be descending 
to the point that once it's 10 centimeters dilated, it'll start to begin to appear through the vaginal opening. And we call that, as first signs of that, we call that crowning because the baby's crown is beginning to show. There, look, honey, like this. There, like that, right. Now, <laughs> if if the bag water is still intact, uh, it'll look gray and smooth. Hold and if, on. I got it. Amy, this is uh, What awesome. are you doing, Amy? I'm the baby. I'm crowning. I'm crowning. Amy's delivering. I'm crowning. So, see, I can feel that Amy's, this one's going to have a lot of hair. And wait, what happens <laughs> when, in a, when a contraction comes is the baby comes out a little more, and then the contraction goes away, and then the baby comes yeah. And it will retract. back in. Right, it retracts so in it, between contraction you'll see this kind of movement as as the baby's wait wait we're gonna deliver hello (laughs) (laughs) so anyhow if amy's bag of water was still intact it would be it would look gray and smooth like a water balloon and if not you'll see you'll see her hair and uh, we have hair this baby's got a lot of hair Well, you, what you'd have to do is you don't want that this head to deliver too quickly. So you very lightly put your hand on the on the part of the head that's visible to make sure that with contractions that it doesn't pop out. Because if it does, then the tears in the vagina will be much worse. And so you want to deliver it in a nice, gentle, controlled manner. And as the baby's head emerges, it'll usually face either upwards or downwards, and then it usually turns to the side. Right. It goes like this. Wait, ready? Mm-hmm. Deliver. Yeah. And turn. Right. And then, <laughs> well, and then what happens is, oh, sometimes, by the way, the cord could be around the neck. And most of the time it's loose, so you can just sort of pull it over the head of the baby. Uh, if it's really tight, there are circumstances where you have to take some of the clamps in there, Amy's kit. They're clamping it. Clamp a clamp and cut, and in, cut, and cut in between. And, and then you right. unwind it. Because it could represent an obstacle to delivery. And so you want the baby to come out in a, in a nice controlled fashion. So Good point. What you do then is that you're going to put your hand on either side of the baby's head. <laughs> I've delivered. Now and my head is turned. Like this. Like this, and very gently, but with some firm pressure, you're going to pull straight down. And when you pull straight down, what happens is, is that the upper shoulder, shoulder. upper shoulder is going to pop out, and then you go up, up and the lower shoulder pops out, pops and then out. and then if you're doing this with a contraction, the whole baby is just going to fly out. And that's why that under, be careful. <laughs> that's why that undercover under under buttock drape that Amy was talking about, I think, is really important because when we put the under buttock drape in, I would put the rest of the sheet of the drape on my lap. And so the baby's slippery if, if, if I, for any reason I dropped it, and it would go just onto my lap instead of onto the floor. Which we never did. Which we never did. But if you've never delivered a baby, but I've they seen are it, very but, slimy. And I've, very, very slimy. I've seen it happen, <laughs> believe me, especially with the medical students that came. Once the baby is delivered, the baby would go up on mommy's tummy and immediately... I got all that. She's got all that. I'll answer that next. All right. Well, that's what I was saying. All right. So baby's out. It's a boy. Okay. (laughs) I want to clarify something. You said the baby just pops out, like, with a contraction. Like, I mean, it's going to come out with force? The widest part is going to be the diameter of the shoulder. So once that's out, there's nothing else that's anywhere near that thick has to come out. So it just goes, shoot. The next push, <laughs> that baby's going to fly right out. It's now, wet now, and slimy and just squishes out. Yeah. Now, some babies that are very big, if it's a 10-pound baby, it may take a while for that to come out too. But usually it's very, very quick. If shoulders are stuck, there are certain maneuvers. 
and you're going to have to read these because we can't possibly go through all of them right now. But if shoulders are big and the baby's head is out, you're going to have to do some things that we can't possibly teach you at this moment. There are severe risks of hurting a baby by pulling on a head that's attached to a shoulder that's stuck underneath a bone. Because no matter how hard you pull, if you don't get that shoulder underneath the bone, you are doing nothing but pulling on this baby's neck. It's not a normal thing to have to do something like that. No, but there are certain maneuvers that you can move the shoulder down to get it underneath the bone, doing certain things with the baby's arm, certain things with your hands. But there, these are things that we learned in school, and it takes weeks and weeks and weeks, months, years of practice to know the safe things to do to get babies that are stuck out. We There's this. flipping the mother upside down. There's going on the side legs, basically taking her legs and putting them up to her, her head, all kinds of things we you may have to do. We a number of these options in our survival medicine handbook. I, I mean, I tell everyone that's the number one book every oh, thank you. should have. Thank you so much. Thank we appreciate you. it. All right, so... Amy, I guess you were going to take it from here. After the baby is delivered, what, what do we do? We're going to do that. But I do want to mention something because I think you were going to ask me what, what the mom and the medic, what the midwife yeah. and the medic should be doing. The mom, entire time. Again, I was talking about the music and relax. Keep her relaxed. Keep her stress-free. Do whatever she's asking. Keep her calm and zen. And focused during the contraction. Exactly. Stay well hydrated. Let her walk around this tolerated. I mean, not don't force her to walk around, but if she feels better walking around, the, maybe she's got back labor, and it just might feel better for her. And then when she's got a contraction, give her something to hold on to. Somebody, a person, right. or the bed, or the back of a couch, so she can grab onto something during the contraction, and then continue to walk around. Let her get up and go to the bathroom. Don't tell her she's got to stay in bed. If she she wants to be on her right side or left side, what's not good is laying on your back. A woman should never be laying on her back during labor. It's a bad position. The baby can't move around and get into a good position. So side lying at least halfway if there's a pillow propped underneath one hip. On all fours if she wants. Standing if she wants to squat like they do deliver babies in the fields. You know, whatever makes her happy. The midwife or the medic or the doctor should be monitoring the vital signs, watching the baby's heartbeat, monitoring the contractions, timing them. It it not only gives you information about how far labor is going, but it gives the mom information too. You know, it tells her like, okay, we're getting there. I know you've been through heck so far, but, but we're close. As far as exams go, sticking your hands in the vagina, not try often. not to. <laughs> Unless there's something that you feel you need to do, maybe it's been a few hours and you want to know what's happening, don't do an exam every 15 minutes. You don't even have to do one hourly. I wouldn't do one any closer than two hours unless, you know, you were eight centimeters and now you think, okay, she's 10, so I need to see, is this time to start pushing? Because you don't want her to push until she's 10 because she could rip her cervix. You want to make sure it's completely gone. So if there's an indication to examine, examine. Try not to just be putting your hands in there willy-nilly. You can introduce bacteria. You can make her sick, and you can make the baby sick by examining too often. So definitely don't do that. And your job is also to help keep her relaxed, and you stay calm. So the baby's head is out. 
if there's a little bit of time before the shoulders come, and you can, you're because you're coordinated and you've delivered enough babies, if you can bulb suction the nose first, both nostrils, squeeze, put in, let go, squish that out, squeeze, push in, let go, and then the same thing for the mouth. That's great because when the first breath comes, the baby's nose and mouth is clear. It's already suctioned out. Most likely, the baby's head is going to turn that sideways, and then those shoulders are going to start coming. And all you can do is, you know, guide that baby out. And then once it's in your arms, then you can suction the nose and then the mouth. Okay, so that's the first thing you're going to do. After you've done that, you can dry the baby. Hopefully you, someone is handing you some warm towels or a warm, couple warm blankets, and you can warm the baby. You want to get all that slime off we were talking about. Right, and the baby loses heat quickly. So. Yes, so you want to dry the baby as fast as possible. The next thing you're going to do is put the baby up on the mom. Get bare skin. You want to put that baby on her chest right here. So the baby's head is laying on one side or the other sideways. So now mom can look down at the baby, see everything's okay. Cover her with a blanket, warm blanket. Get mom and baby snuggled up together. Obviously leave the baby's head out of the blanket. But, but throw a nice warm blanket over there. You don't want everyone to start shivering and getting cold and losing heat, especially a baby. They have, they have a hard time regulating their temperature. So dry and warm. You don't throw a hot blanket on, but if you had some way to warm some blankets, that would be great. You don't have to cut that umbilical cord immediately. Some people prefer not to. That's a little extra blood that can go into the baby from the umbilical cord. So you can wait a couple of minutes um, but when you do clamp it, clamp at least seven inches away from the baby's belly. Okay, so seven inches is the first clamp. Ten inches is the second clamp. Okay, so the closest clamp is seven inches from the baby's belly. You don't want to cut too close. You don't want to accidentally no, go to cut. cut you don't want to accidentally go to cut between the two clamps and end up, you know, cutting the baby's foot or something else. So that's too dangerous to to really clamp close to the baby so away from the baby at least seven inches and ten inches and then these are the sterilized instruments that you had or the very cleaned instruments you had and then use those scissors to cut between them that separates the baby now from the cord that's still inside connected to the placenta to now the baby is with the mom separated there's nothing connecting it anymore now, as long as the placenta is still attached to the mother, then it's still giving some blood to the baby. So it does help, I think, wait, to wait yeah, a minute or two. A couple two, of wait minutes, for right. For sure. It doesn't have to be an absolute immediate thing. But within a couple of minutes, go ahead and give the clamp and, and cut in between. And then throw that, that other clamp that's connected to the baby up underneath the blanket so they're all warm. Once the placenta is separated and out, obviously it's not doing any good for the baby. Right. So. Okay, so now let's talk about delivering the placenta. Do not pull on the cord that is still connected to the placenta inside the woman. Don't start yanking on it. What can happen in a very dire emergency is that uterus with the placenta connected, if you yank on it and it's not separated, that uterus could fold inside out and come right out of that woman because you have yanked that placenta and it was not separated. That is a dire emergency. A woman can die, bleed to death right then and there. Now you've got a baby, you've got no mom. Do not pull on the placenta. This is serious stuff. 
what you want to do is gently massage the top of the uterus. Now the uterus was basically up underneath her rib cage before she delivered. Now the baby's come out, it's shrunk. About to the belly button. You want to bring it into a nice contraction because that contraction, that nice muscle tightness in there will help to separate the placenta. To get that uh, uterus nice and tight, you want to gently massage. The location of the top of the uterus at this point is around the belly button, somewhere around there. So it's it's almost shrunk in half. It's up to the ribs, and now it's down around the belly button. So you want to put your hand down into where the mother's belly button is, and you want to gently massage. Gently massage that. You're trying to stimulate a contraction. You will feel the uterus tighten up and get into a muscle cramp. Right. You will feel that change happen. When a contraction occurs, it feels like your forehead. When a, in between contractions, it feels like your cheek. Soft cheek, right. So you'll feel that happen. And when that uterus gets nice and tight, it probably at that point will then release the placenta. If you have the cord in your hand and you're not pulling on it, but you, f you have a, I want to say a gentle pressure on it. You're not tugging it, but you feel it. If you feel that cord kind of start to come out that's your indication that the placenta has separated now you want to take your hand from the top of the uterus massaging it to right above her pubic bone because you want to keep that uterus from folding up and coming out so you're now guarding the uterus as you gently guide the placenta out with the cord and you can go further with the cord. You don't have to keep your hand at the end of the cord where the clamp is. You can come in a little bit. So you kind of moving your hand closer to the vagina to gently guide the placenta out. But you keep your hand up against the pubic bone, holding the uterus from coming out. And it will deliver pretty easily. When it comes out, it's this big, giant, slimy, grayish looking with all kinds of veins sort of like grainy, blue, grainy blue, liver blue on one veins, side and, yeah and smooth blue on one other drop that into a basin or a bowl that's gone you don't need that anymore that can just i don't know go put it under a tree or something <laughs> at this point in hospitals we throw it away in biohazard bags when you go back to the baby the baby will be washed after a while with some warm water you can even use it with a, a washcloth just to clean the baby up a little bit, you'll be putting a diaper on it. You'll be measuring the baby with a measuring tape, checking all the measurements because you're going to want to monitor the baby's growth as the pediatrician does. If you have a baby scale, you want to weigh the baby so everyone knows what the baby's starting off. It is kind of normal to lose a few ounces in the first few days of life. The breast milk isn't out so much. The baby uses something called brown fat for its health and for its energy. And as that brown fat goes away, the baby loses a little bit of weight. That's not a problem. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. That's just a lot of information there. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so what can someone do now, right, to, to prepare for something like that? I mean, we definitely, you know, your kit, I think, is important. You've got the, the medical handbook, I think, is, is always important. Everyone should have that. Well, you know, I think that the the main thing is just to stay healthy, have a healthy lifestyle, get good nutrition, stay as physically fit as you possibly can, be as normal, uh, get down to as normal a weight as possible for your height and age. And uh, I, I just think that it's, it's really important to have a plan of action, just to know that the fact that a pregnancy could occur in a, you know, what hits a fan situation, I think is, is the main thing. You just have to 
have the materials and you have to have uh, I, and also, by the way, I would think that it would be a good idea to go on YouTube and look at some delivery yes. videos. Right. So that, because it can look pretty freaky to someone who's never seen it before. So I think you need to desensitize yes. yourself to what things look like and how things go so that it, you know, you won't freak and, out. And watching the hand maneuvers. So these things that we talked about, when the head comes out and then goes sideways, that you're you're learning how that you you're pulling down slightly to get that upper shoulder out, and then you're pulling up a little bit to get the bottom shoulder out, and then what you do is you kind of guide the baby with the shoulders and sort of slide it onto your arm like a football. I mean, there's there's just certain maneuvers that you can do that that make it safer uh, during the delivery. I so just, watching those are. It's a good idea. Now, I just want to say that this is a natural process, and it occurs without complication in almost all cases. Right. In most cases, things go just fine, and you have a healthy mother and baby at, at the end. That's your goal. Now, I want to say that there are a lot of different ways. There's different ways to uh, skin a cat, and there's different ways to birth a kitten. And so, uh, so Kittens birth themselves. You don't need so, to worry about that. So you may have some, <laughs> there may be some folk out there that, you know, are midwives themselves or obstetricians, and they do things in a somewhat different way than what you've just heard. But no, this what way I said is, is the right very, way. Is, is, <laughs> what she said is the right way. And there are a lot, of, a lot of different ways and a lot of different philosophies with regards to this, and all of them deserve their respect. And uh, bottom line is we all have the same goals, have a healthy mother and a healthy baby at Absolutely. the end. Yeah, I, I think that's really good advice to uh, know what to expect and, and seeing videos. I mean, nowadays, um, having that available to us is, is so powerful. I want to ask a question um, just after the baby. I mean, of course, in an SHTF situation, the mother is going to be nursing. But I know of a lot of people who tried nursing, a lot of women who tried to nurse and it didn't work out. And for whatever reason, maybe you know, they, they just couldn't get past it or, or whatever. Or then I know there's been babies who try one formula and they jump from formula to formula to formula because the, the baby's not accepting it or not taking it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what can we expect there in a situation like after, I know this is like after the birth, after all of that stuff, but is every woman naturally going to be able to nurse? Is, is there ever a problem there? I have to say, it was something that I was absolutely determined to do. You have to be so determined to breastfeed that nothing will stop you. I had bleeding nipples, and I know this is probably T TMI, but I was determined that nothing was going to stop me. But there are some women who, for whatever reason, their milk just doesn't come in well. And I understand that. I don't know what we're going to do. Hopefully you've stored up. All kinds of formulas. They're dry. Thank goodness they have these dry powders in cans that probably have a super long shelf life. Um, I think goat's milk might be a replacement. I forget. It's been so long for me. My youngest is, what, 27, 26? I think in, in um, most cases, breast milk will come in. It's just that there's a lot of discomfort because of the babies being at the nipple a lot. Well, and you have to put it on right. There's a, yeah. there's a lot of things about breastfeeding. If you buy breastfeeding books, there's for sure. There's cream, isn't there? They can use? There's creams or lanolin salves mm -hmm. that are safe for the baby. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to, The biggest thing is... Hydration, you got to drink a ton of water because your body is making enough fluid 
to feed a baby. And I don't, there was almost not enough water that I could drink. I was so thirsty. And then positioning. You uh, Hopefully you have somebody who's breastfed before who shows you how to properly position. Because if you don't, that's when you get the problem with the nipples. And they can crack and bleed. And it's horrifyingly painful. Way worse than delivery. Because it, it is happening every two hours. And you feel as a mom, you have to do this because you got to feed your baby. And so you go through this pain and torture every two hours for your child. And it doesn't give you a lot of time to heal. It's tough. So starting off with proper positioning, hopefully having somebody who's experienced, who says, this is how you do it. Don't let the baby suck the nipple in. The baby's got to have a wide mouth. And then you put as much of the areola into the mouth as possible so that the baby is compressing on the outside of the areola and not sucking the nipple and pulling on the nipple trying to get milk out. That's the wrong way to for a baby to eat, and it's very difficult. And the baby's going to get fussy, and the mom's going to get fussy. I think, like, you're exactly right. Having someone who has experienced it who can give a little bit of uh, instruction, I think that's so powerful. You know, one of the things in the preparedness community we're always talking about you know, what can someone do out there? You know, what kind of skills does someone need to be able to, to have? And man, this is something just having that kind of knowledge would be so beneficial because again, we're so, we're so used to going out and getting the formula and, and, you know, having the bottles and all that kind of stuff. And that's, uh, you know, it's one of those things that in the, in the past, in the old days, <laughs> old, olden days, yeah. um, it was just common knowledge. You know, you, you had your mom there or your grandmother there or, you know, the neighbor there who knew right. what was going on and, and could help out. And this yep. is going to be information that if we ever wind up in an SHTF situation, that it's going to be kind of new information for some people. Yes, You're right. We've exactly. lost a lot of those skills that our ancestors have. And that's why I think it's really important to learn some of these things and think about what you would do if you didn't have access to modern medical facilities and medicines and Absolutely. You know, modern professionals. That's basically what we write about now I, I do want to mention a book that i actually got recently um hesperian has updated their um midwife book and um i have pretty much looked through this it is just very similar to where there is no doctor but i'm i don't care for where there is no doctor personally and he's got a lot of weird theories about water um but this particular book, and every one of their books is written by different people. So it's a completely different author. But what they do really well is they have lots of pictures. And so just randomly flipping to a page here, we have pictures of how to breastfeed. And I, I just randomly opened this, Todd, just to show you some pictures. But this book not only goes through how to deliver a baby. It goes through pregnancy. It goes through complications. It goes through miscarriages. It goes how to deliver a breech baby, how to deliver a baby whose shoulders are stuck. Uh, and then it talks about postpartum care, too. I didn't know that they had made this book better. It was just updated in 2020. And it's called? But the 2020 version is nice, and it's called A Book for Midwives, Care for Pregnancy, Birth, and Women's Health. Susan Klein, Sulin Miller, Suellen, Suellen Miller. Miller, and Fiona Thompson. You'll so, find it at Hesperian.org. Yeah, it's um, it's a like I said, the updated version, and they updated it really nicely. Uh, the pictures are real good. It's 
very simply explained. Our medical textbooks that we learned from have a lot of medical technical words, a lot of medical ease, you call it. And this is written very simply. Right. And you'll also find in, in our survival medicine handbook, we have an entire section on. You uh, do. You wrote a very, very nice section. Well. Yeah. And I, again, I can't recommend that book enough. Thank you. So, um, I will link to all that good stuff. Any other resources that you recommend? Well, it depends on how deep into it you want to get. There's a, a, a textbook that Amy and uh, her colleagues use called Varney's, Varney's Midwifery. Yes. V-A-R-N-E-Y. That was our Bible. Mm-hmm. For midwives who had to, to learn pregnancy and delivery and postpartum, we lived and breathed Varney. <laughs> it was amazing. I still have it. I will never let go of that textbook. We've we've thrown a lot of super old books that we knew were we needed some new updated ones, um, but that we held on to. I'm gonna ask you, like, if you go to you know a used bookstore and you found that book, um, that would be one that would be still kind of up to date and the it's sort of evergreen. And you know evergreen. why? You know why? Because women are shaped the same. Because we still have the same processes of delivery. We still have the same processes of breastfeeding and postpartum. It has not changed. Until human beings grow a third arm and have babies, I don't know, out of their neck or something, those books, whether they're, you know, 30 years old, I I don't think I'd trust something that was 100 years old. But, you know, within the past since, I don't know, 1970, I mean, there's just not a lot that's been changed. There's new machines for hospitals, but we're not talking about hospitals here. We're talking about the natural processes and having to do this in, in a home environment, and that's not changed. You have provided so much information, um, more than I, I could have even imagined, and uh, I just want to say thank you, and I greatly appreciate all this information here, but then all the other stuff that you are doing uh, for the preparedness community uh, out there. You've been doing it for a while. How can someone, if they want to, because uh, I, I know I, I have new listeners to the podcast all the time, uh, someone who is uh, just new to you and to what y'all are doing out there, how can they find you? What's the best place to, to go? And Well, you can find our website, which has over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos at doomandbloom.net. You can also say put doomandbloom.com. It'll take you to doomandbloom.net. Uh, you'll find uh, her kits and other individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Uh, our YouTube channel is Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. Our YouTube channel, Facebook, is the Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy uh, Facebook group, and we have uh, over 7,000 strong there. Uh, you'll find lots of people that are interested in survival medicine there. Twitter is at Prepper Show. Yeah. And our podcast is called the Survival <clears throat> Medicine Podcast, and that's on Blog Talk Radio. All of those links and everything we just mentioned, plus there's a an Apple podcast page. Every single link to those things we just mentioned is at the top of doomandbloom.net. I have all the icons. You want to go to the Facebook group. You want to go to the Instagram. You want to go to the YouTube channel. Wherever you want to go. That will take you there. And you can find our books on Amazon, The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide are the three latest ones. You'll find them at Amazon or on our website. Awesome. Well, guys, I'll link to definitely Doom and Bloom, and I always tell everyone about your book. I've mentioned that a couple of times. I think I even have it on the side of the 
of the the podcast website. It's like this is the book you need. Thank you very much. And we want to thank you, Todd, uh, Todd, for everything that you do for the preparedness community. I mean, what your website has become uh, just iconic in terms of uh, all the information that's available. And you just collated that's the a thing. library. You, right. You've put so many things together that the resource, and no matter what topic people are specifically looking for, let's say they're going to find solar energy. But while they're looking for that, they're also seeing ham radios and they're seeing first aid information and they're seeing, you know, just all different things, how to grow a survival garden. So there's so much you can find and it gives people idea for topics that they might not even thought about. Yeah. No, like I, I, I labor and delivery. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, this is going to be one for the books, I think, man, because this is uh, a lot of good information. And I think... I was I was lucky enough to be in the delivery room with my wife, and I have a pretty you know it, it doesn't bother me to see all the gory stuff, right? Um, the nurses were always really like, "Hey Todd, you stay over there." They were always because they they would say, well, "We have big guys who think they're really tough, and they wind up fainting because of all the you know whatever they see." I mean, that, that never happened to me. Um, so I have a little bit of experience of some of the stuff that you're talking about, but the stuff that you talked about and the detail that you had, I mean, there's some stuff there that you just don't, you know, cause you're focusing on your wife and, and you're dealing with, you know, the contractions and the pushing and you're being there and you know, all the, the pain that she's feeling and what she's going through, you're not really paying attention to what the doctor's doing. And then all the little things that you just don't realize they're doing that they're doing and how important they are. So you provided a lot of great information, and I uh, just want to say thank you again for doing that. Well, thank oh, you for you're having very us. welcome. It was awesome. Uh, definitely.